this morning, uh, as I was thinking about this morning's message, I found myself this past week while I was catching up on some bills after being away. Uh, you know how that's like sometimes. You, I don't know if you're like me, but I come back and then I just sit down and got this pile of mail and everything and going through that. And I had the TV on in the background, just some television programs. And uh, probably in the course of two or three hours, I watched four parts of maybe three or four shows and uh, and then afterwards, when I was going up to bed, I realized every show I watched was kind of in the same genre of television program. And I don't know if you're like that, maybe you kind of watch the same thing, but I'm kind of like that. I watched the same kind of genre, and every one of the shows I watched was in this kind of crime, mystery, uh, figure it out, whodunit kind of genre of program. Maybe that's not you, but that's me. I mean, in the course of three hours, I watched parts of a show called Psych, parts of a show called Monk, Blue Bloods. I think I watched some Law and Order. Um, but what hit me is all of them are different. Some are comedies, some are dramas, but they're all kind of the same show, right? I mean, if, you, if you've watched them, you know that, right? They're all kind of the same plot line of the, that they go along, even though they may have different names and different, um, different uh, aspects to them. They all kind of do the same thing. Uh, and what I realized about myself watching these shows and watching all the different ones and over and over again is I realized I like to see people get what they deserve. <laughs> right? I mean, that's one of the reasons I watch these shows. I watch in the beginning and something bad happens and I want to see that that person gets what they deserve by the end of the show. And I'm disappointed if they don't. Right, and that's the hook that keeps us going. I mean, think about it. We watch these shows over and over again, right? How many of you uh, used to, I'm gonna date myself a little bit, but how many of you used to watch Murder, She Wrote? Right, Murder, She Wrote, remember? Angela Lansbury. If you haven't seen it, you've seen it because it's the same as every other crime show, right? And so how Murder, She Wrote went, you knew exactly how the show was gonna go. In fact, not only did you know how the show was going to go, you knew what was going to happen and when it was going to happen, right? You knew that in the beginning of the show, Angela Lansbury, right, she'd be sitting in like a tea shop or she'd be sitting in like a tea room and everything would be nice. Birds would be chirping. Flowers would be there. A light wind blowing. Everything's just wonderful in Angela's world, right? And then she's talking with someone. She walks out the door and, oh, wasn't this lovely? And then they walk out the door and they trip over a dead body. Right? And, and that's, that's what happens to every one of these shows, right? You watch it with Psych. You, if, you watch, if you're into the acronym ones, you know, NCIS, CSI, CSILA, CSI Miami, whatever they are, <laughs> same thing, right? Within the first five minutes of the show, you know somebody dies. You are coming across a dead body. And then you also know that within the next 55 minutes, you are going to find out who died, who killed them, what happened, and justice will be served. And you even know when that's going to happen. They are not going to solve it 30 minutes through. Why? Because you will turn off the TV. And they know you will turn off the TV. They're going to solve it at five minutes before the hour. And they're going to tell you what happened, who did it, justice will be served, and then there'll be a commercial break. And then you come back for two minutes of, oh, let's have tea. Isn't this lovely? It's wonderful. We're back having tea. And too bad about that dead person. And... But all this happens in 60 minutes, every time, all these shows, and yet we continue to watch. And yet they continue to write them, and people continue to watch them. Why? I think because we love story, we love mystery, but I think also because we love to see people get what they deserve. We want to see justice served. And in fact, if justice isn't served, it bothers us. So there's a few of these shows out there that take kind of an avant-garde approach and at the end they don't resolve it and it just leaves you with this kind of unresolved tension and you're like, I don't like that. I'm not going to, because there's something within us that wants to resolve tension, that wants to see the bad guys get what the bad guys deserve and then we can move on and watch the next show, right? I think that's something within us that wants to see people get what they deserve is a good thing. I think it's put there by God. But there's also something within us that's also a good thing, that when people don't get what they deserve, it bothers us. 
It doesn't just bother us. It's been bothering people for centuries, for millennia. Uh, Even in the Bible, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes noticed this reality, and it bothered him too. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14, we've been walking through this book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book of wisdom. The author writes this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. This is a problem, isn't it? But it's a reality that we all see that sometimes bad things happen to good people. And then sometimes the wicked seem to prosper. And it seems like good things happen to bad people. And it's true in the world that we live in. You see it and I see it. We can't ignore it. That there are sometimes people that we look at and they say, what did they ever do to deserve that? A couple hundred people board a plane, kiss their loved ones goodbye, going to a work trip, maybe going on a family trip, maybe going on pleasure, maybe going to visit some friends. I'll be back in a couple days. We'll see you in a few days. Maybe they don't even bother to wake their loved ones and they just leave because they're going to be back in a few days and two weeks later, no one even knows where the plane is. Is it at the bottom of the ocean? Is it in another country? No one even knows where it is. And we say, what did these couple hundred people who went through security and did everything they were supposed to do and what did they do to deserve this? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there something in Boston called the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Jimmy Fund? Why is there an entity at all called Children's Hospital? It occurred to me a couple months ago when I walked into that how much of an oxymoron that is, how much of a paradox of terms that is, that we have to have an entity called Children's Hospital. I said, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does the drunk driver walk away while the family in the other car is attending funerals? Why do bad things happen to good people? And then there's the other side of it, right? Why does it seem like sometimes people get away with things? Why does it seem like sometimes the people who are doing the wrong thing seem to get away with it? The rich miser who's generous to no one and shows love to no one lives a long life while the generous person that everybody loves and is generous with everybody dies young. Why does it seem like Sometimes the wicked prosper. Why is it that the athlete that doesn't play by the rules is rewarded with a guaranteed gigantic contract while someone else is struggling and the miners barely making it? Why is it that the Hollywood star seems to do one stupid thing after another and get off with just a slap on the wrist? These contradictions exist in our world. And they cause questions in our mind. And if you don't deal with them or you haven't dealt with them, I bet you have. But I promise you, people you talk to about your faith definitely have these questions. In fact, many people, it becomes their key question of whether or not they will follow or believe in God. This thing that philosophers and theologians call the problem of evil. Because it's not so much about just injustice or just why bad things happen to, to good people. It's really about the presence of evil itself, isn't it? The presence of suffering and pain at all. I mean, it's a problem for those of us that call ourselves Christians. It's not a problem for atheists. The problem of evil is not a problem for atheists because why wouldn't there be evil? In fact, really, if you want to talk about atheism, the real problem they have is the problem of good. Because if you're an atheist and there's no moral lawgiver and no moral code, why would there be any good in the world? Why would anyone do anything good for anyone? I mean, really, the 
atheism has the problem of good, but if you're a Christian serving a loving, powerful God, the question comes up is, what do you do with evil? Epicurus, if you remember back to your Greek philosophy days, if you took any of that, was a, was a, a philosopher uh, in the Greek world, and he kind of posed the situation this way in something known as the Epicurean paradox. And I'll tell you just before I read that, we're going to do some uh, thinking today. So uh, turn to your neighbor on your left and say, put your thinking cap on. Not that I don't think you always don't think in church. I hope you do. But we are going back in time, if you've been out of school for a while, towards deductive reasoning, syllogisms, this kind of, this kind of thinking. And if you've been out of school a while, uh, we're going to take you back a little bit because need we need to understand this reasoning and understand these arguments. So Epicurus put it this way. He said there's four possibilities for God and evil. God either wishes to take away evils and is unable. He is able and unwilling, or he is neither willing nor able, or he is both willing and able. So let's just parse out these four for a second. He said these are the four possibilities. Either God is willing and unable. In other words, God's powerful enough. He can do it. He could stop it. He could take away evil. He could take away pain. He could stop it all in a moment. Uh, he's, willing, he's, he's willing to do it. Uh, I'm sorry. He's willing and unable. He's willing to do it. He wants to do it, but he's unable to do it. That makes him weak and feeble. I got a little ahead of myself. The second one is he is able and unwilling. He's able to do it. He's powerful to do it. He has the ability to do it. He just doesn't want to. This makes him evil, malevolent, sadistic, whatever you want to use there. That would be a God that I don't know that you'd want to serve. In other words, he's powerful enough to do it, but he says, I just don't care. I just don't care. And so the two options, the first, are between feeble and evil. The third one, he's unwilling and unable, doesn't have the power to do it, wouldn't do it even if he could. And that would be an evil God and a weak God. And Epicurus says the fourth possibility is really the only one that would be any kind of God. He's willing and able, wants to defeat evil, has the power to defeat evil, and that's the only person that could be considered anything called a God. But that leaves us with a question. And the question is this. Where does evil come from and why doesn't God remove it? If God is willing and able to deal with pain and suffering and evil, then why doesn't he just get rid of it? We can talk about this in philosophical terms, but when we start talking about it in personal terms of thinking about why does he allow some of the things that happen in this world? What about your friend who suffered a difficulty or a loss of a loved one? If God can do it and he wants to do it, he's, why doesn't he do it? Some people take this and they go one step further and we come to what's the deductive problem of evil. The deductive problem of evil is this. God's power means he can prevent any evil since God can do absolutely anything. God's goodness means he would prevent any evil, but there is evil, so God cannot exist. Anybody come against this argument at times in talking to friends or talking to people that you come against this type of reasoning that, that when you talk to them about Jesus, they say, look, let me, let me tell you what happened to me. And if your God would allow that, there's, I, I can't even believe in that God. I can't even believe a God like that would exist. If you tell me your God is powerful and loving and this happens in the world and this plane disappears and this tragedy happens and these, I can't even believe in a God like that. So God must not exist. See, the question people often come with when it comes to the problem of evil and tragedy and pain is why? Why? Why would it happen? Why would God allow it to happen? And the answer they often come up with is, well, either he can't stop it, he doesn't want to stop it, or he doesn't exist at all. Either way, they walk away from him. And some people in your life, 
that maybe you're trying to talk about Jesus with, talk about your faith, and the thing that really they run up against. You may get past all kinds of questions in their life, but they come against this one thing of the problem of evil. But maybe it's not a friend. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're sitting here today and maybe you sit in church every week and maybe you said, you know what? That's one thing, Pastor Rick, I've kind of put off in the corner of my mind and I've just, I've gone around and around and around it. I can't come up with a solution. I don't know how to deal with it, but I know that God exists and I trust him, so I just don't think about it. Well, I don't think that's the way God wants us to work. I think he wants us to think through things that are challenging. I don't think God's afraid of our questions. So I want to look this morning at how to kind of confront this problem, the deductive problem of evil, and, and try to talk about, is there a solution to it? I think there is. I think there are better answers than either God isn't powerful or God doesn't love us or God doesn't exist. And I think there's a better question than why. At the end of the message, I want to give you another question that I think is a much more biblical question. Why is not really a question we often see in the Bible, and I want to give you one that I think will be much more helpful. But as we confront the question of the problem of evil, two points I want to make. First is this. The existence of evil does not disprove the existence of God. Many people would say it does. That you cannot have both. It's got to be one or the other. That you cannot have a loving and powerful God and have pain and suffering and evil in the world. So since I know there is pain and suffering and evil, I know there is no God. And so they take this argument and say, it dis- you cannot have both. And so there must be no God. But the truth is the existence of evil does not disprove the existence of God. In fact, many philosophers, non-Christian, non-religious, have come to the point where they will admit the fact that the existence of evil does not preclude the existence of God. Um, let's, um, let's take a look again at that uh, deductive reasoning, but let's see if there's a different conclusion we can come to. First three premises are still the same. God's power means God can prevent evil. God's goodness means he would prevent it, but there is evil. But is there a plausible and possible fourth conclusion that can be reached other than God doesn't exist? I think there is, and it's this. For any evil God allows... He has morally sufficient reason even if we don't know what the reason is. This doesn't prove that God exists. All it proves is that the argument is not necessarily one that proves he doesn't exist, right? Some people would say, well, you know, evil exists, so God can't. And you say, no, 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 there could be, could it not be that there's a reason God has for allowing evil that we yet don't understand? Tim Keller puts it this way. Tim Keller says this, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. In other words, if the possibility exists that there is a God powerful enough to stop evil and you are mad because that God has not stopped evil, then you at least have to allow for the possibility that that same God may be a little bit smarter than you, may have a little bigger perspective than you, and may have possible reasons for allowing pain and suffering and difficulty and evil in the world that we do not yet know about. Just because we don't understand, uh, it doesn't mean it's not true. There's, not a diff- there's a difference between our knowing the purpose for evil and God having a purpose for it. We can't assume, assume there's no good purpose for something just because we don't understand it. Let me give you an example. It's like, if you, those of you who are parents, have you ever tried to take a splinter out of a kid's foot? Right? I, so with me, I don't know if that's hard for you, but my kids let out blood-curdling screams when they get splinters in their foot, right? And so, I, you know, they get this splinter in their foot, and they're walking around pain, and I go, no, no, don't, 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 don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it, right? And they go like this, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so the way it usually goes in our house is, is Wendy will, you know, pull a WrestleMania move and just <laughs> hold them down, And I will grab a foot and be wrestling it and trying not to pierce him with the tweezers, right? Because why? 
Because I know that even though this short amount of pain they will experience may be painful to them, it will not harm them in the long run. In fact, it'll be for their health and for their betterment. They don't believe me right then, but I know it's true. Same thing when, you know, they scrape up, get a cut on your arm, and you say, let me clean it out. No, 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 don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it. But I got to clean it out. It'll get infected. It'll get dirty. You can't, you got, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Because I know that for their long-term health, this is what needs to take place. I know a little bit more than them. They don't think that, but I think I know a little bit more than them. And so I have a little bigger perspective And so I know that this will help them. Could it be that if we say that God is big enough and powerful enough to stop these things, could it be that he also knows a little bit more than us to be able to say there is a reason that I have allowed this even though you do not at this point understand it. So just the fact that evil exists does not mean that God does not exist. Ravi Zacharias, I didn't put this quote on the screen because it's a little long, but I just love the way he puts it. If you ever heard Ravi Zacharias, he's a great uh, Christian speaker and apologist, which just means a defender of the faith. Uh, My son calls him the sorry guy because he's an apologist. He says, is that the sorry guy? Yeah, that's that's the sorry guy. So, but Ravi is a great speaker. He speaks at Harvard University and others and goes and talks about the Christian faith. And he puts it this way. I wish I could say it like Ravi does, but I'm just gonna read it. When you say there's too much evil in the world, you assume there's good. When you assume there's good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral lawgiver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral lawgiver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. So what is your question? <laughs> I just love the way around. And it's true, right? If you're going to say evil is a problem for Christianity, you have to say who's evil? What definition of evil? Because if you're going to say there is no such thing as a moral law and a moral lawgiver, how can you define what is evil and what is good? You can get half a dozen people in a room and you will not be able to decide together on what is evil. Even if you come to the lowest common denominator and say, okay, we all agree murder is wrong. You'll get one guy back, I don't know, sometimes it may not be wrong. We can't agree on the smallest definition of evil. And so if you're going to say there's evil in the world, someone has to decide what evil is. There has to be some kind of moral code and moral lawgiver. And so the existence of evil does not mean that God does not exist. Second point is this. The existence of evil is not incompatible with the existence of an all-powerful, all-loving God. Some people might say, okay, I'll grant your first premise. God can exist, but not the Christian God that you say exists. I'll grant your premise. There might be a God out there who's powerful, but maybe he's like the Greek gods of mythology who just kind of were powerful but had no interest in human beings, right? They They just wanted to play among themselves with the gods. They had no interest in humans, according to Greek mythology, except to toy with them. So they'll say, I'll grant your first premise, but your second premise that God is loving and powerful, I still don't believe can be true. And I want to say that the existence of evil does not, is not incompatible with the existence of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Alvin Plantiga is a philosopher, been a professor at Calvin College and Notre Dame University. He says this, he says, a, God will, a, a good God will eliminate evil as far as he can without either losing a greater good or bringing about a greater evil. So uh, planting a saying there is, is, look, yes, God will eliminate evil, but not if it means eliminating a greater good and not if it means bringing about a greater evil. So what in the Christian faith could be a greater good that God would not want to eliminate even at the expense 
or even at the benefit of eliminating evil. What could be that greater good? I believe that greater good is the greatest gift that God has given to humanity, and it's the gift he has uniquely given to humanity among all of the creation that we know, and it's the gift of freedom. That God uniquely endued humans with the image of God in his own, in his own image, which is the freedom to choose or to not choose. The freedom to love or to not love. The freedom to obey or to not obey. The freedom to worship or to not worship. If you're more of a graphical uh, uh, depicted person, chart person, maybe this chart helps. So possible worlds God could have created, right? So in the beginning, there's God. And then God has a choice. Do I not create? Do I create and just, just leave it me, the Trinity? Nothing, or do I create something? So God chooses to create something. Okay, if he's going to create something, is this something going to be free or not free? Not free. A world of rocks and trees and dumb animals and uh, and robots. You know, a not free world. Or will I create a free world where there is at least one creature endued with the ability to choose unforcefully what they want or don't want God chooses to create a free world. When he does that, there's going to be an option. That freedom will either be used to choose godly things, it will have no sin, or they will use their freedom, that gift, to choose evil things, and sin will enter the world. For a little while, there was the world without sin. I don't know for how long. I don't know how long Adam and Eve lived without sinning, but I also don't know when the serpent entered into creation. The Bible doesn't really tell us that, but for some period of time, whether it was long or short, there was no evil. There was was no uh, evil that entered into creation, but there was the possibility of it because that was God's gift. God's gift was freedom. And then when sin entered in, God had a choice. We'll all be saved, and which reverts back to really not having freedom. Doesn't matter if you don't want God, you're getting him anyway. Or will some be saved? If you want God, you get him. If you don't, you don't. And then your eternal choice is ratified. And that's the world that God chose to create. You may think it's not the best conceivable world, but I believe it is the best conceivable and the best achievable world. Because God endued us with the greatest gift he could, and it's the gift of freedom. See, here's the reality. You cannot take away evil completely without taking away freedom. This is something our country, just look at it this way. Our country wrestles with this every day, right? Our country is constantly wrestling with the trade-off of safety, security, and freedom. One of my sisters went to the Grand Canyon about a month ago, and I was joking with her. I said, well, it's a good thing you went to see it, because as soon as somebody falls in, they're going to fill the whole thing in. Because I feel like that's the way our world is going nowadays. You know, somebody gets hurt, forget it. You know, put up a 20-foot wall, we'll look at it through a window. Nobody gets to get close to it. You know, there's this trade-off. We want to be 100% safe, but sometimes we don't realize we're always going to trade in freedom. And sometimes we're more than willing to make that choice. I'm a big seatbelt proponent. I think we should all wear seatbelts in cars. But that was a trade-off, right? You want to drive in a car. That's what, You want to be safe in a car. You're going to trade your freedom to wear a seatbelt or not wear a seatbelt. You want to drive in a car. You're going to trade your freedom for safety to drive on both sides of the road. Right? You, you, we have traded that freedom. I cannot go out and drive on the left side of the road without putting my safety in jeopardy. At least in America, I can't. But there's always this trade-off. And our, our world wrestles with it all the time, especially in the world of digital communication and your digital footprint and, and, and all this stuff, this trade-off of, okay, you're going to trade your safety for freedom. And this is the trade-off that God knew existed, that if he were to completely eliminate evil, that there would be no suffering, no pain, that no possibility of it, then he also had to completely eliminate your freedom to choose to love him, or not love him, and he would preside over a creation that was simply dumb in the most literal 
definition of that word. A dumb creation that went about with no choice, no will, just following instincts. And I think God, in his wisdom, said, that's not good. In creation, in the creation story, says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He created man and woman in his image. It was good. And had he not created man and woman in his image, it would not have been good. He said, this is good. It's more fun. It's more fun. There was a time in biblical history that we know about that God wiped out much of the evil that was present on the earth. Can you remember it? It's a movie about it coming out this Friday. Right? Noah. And just a parenthetical here. Some people are wondering, do I go see Noah? Do I not go see Noah? What's going on? I don't hear. You know, some of you, some of you have heard things, you know, I don't know if it's true to the Bible or whatever. Um, my advice is go see it. I think, I think we should see it uh, because if we're going to talk about it with people, we ought to know what we're talking about, you know. Uh, some people, um, it probably frustrates you like it frustrates me when someone says, oh, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, have you read it? No, 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 but I know what people said about it. I, and sometimes we take the same approach. Well, I have disagreements with some of the things in that Noah movie. Would well, you see it? No, no, I just know I have. If we're going to talk with people about things, I think it opens up a good opportunity to be able to have a conversation uh, about a part of the Bible that maybe some people don't understand about. Close parentheses. All right, so Noah. That was a time, right, when... Um, when God said, the evil on the earth has gotten to a point where I can't stand it anymore. He said, basically, I'm going to start over. And I'm going to start with this man, Noah, and his family. So I'm going to wipe out all pain, suffering, evil, all of that from the face of the earth, which is what so many of us ask him to do. Right? Oh, please, God, stop it, stop it, stop it. Well, this is the way he stopped it. He wiped out the earth's population which is weird that we think this is a children's story. This is a tragic story of God coming to the end of his patience and saying, I'm going to wipe out sin from the earth and I'm going to keep this one man, Noah, and his family. But here's what he didn't do. What he didn't do was take away Noah and his family's freedom to choose. And had he really intended to wipe out evil and sin from the earth, he would have had to take that away from Noah. Because if you know the story, it's not long after the ark is sitting on dry land. I mean, things haven't even dried out. I don't even think all the animals have been unloaded off the ark yet. And Noah gets drunk, and his daughters basically rape him. And suddenly, this earth where evil was wiped out is polluted once again. Why? Because God chose not to take away his greatest gift that he gave to men and to women, the gift to choose. I sometimes, when I'm talking to people who are heartbroken about loved ones who seem to be rejecting God, I try and remind them that you can't do what God wouldn't do. You can't take away their freedom to choose because God himself doesn't take it away. God chose to give them that freedom. God chose to give them that gift. And as much as you hurt for them, as much as your heart breaks for them, you can't take away that wonderful gift that God has given to them. So evil can't be destroyed completely without completely destroying freedom, and God is not willing to do that. So the truth is there is a higher purpose. So you can have a loving and powerful God and still have evil exist in the world because he's so loving that he gives you the ability to choose. So the answer to the deductive problem of evil is this. It's another three step kind of syllogistic argument. It goes like this. An omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God created the world. God created a good world in which evil was possible and became actual and had a good reason for doing so. Therefore, the world contains evil. 
So if someone says, how can evil exist in the world and there still be a loving and powerful God? This is really the response to that argument. When the Ecclesiast, writer of Ecclesiastes says, look, it's meaningless. This is really the response. The reason is that God is loving and benevolent and powerful and omniscient. He did create a world, though, where so that good and so that true love, because forced love is not real love. If you have to love somebody, there is no real love in that, and God knows that more than anyone. And so he created a world where people could choose to love or not to love, and some chose not to. And so the world contains evil. But let me wrap up and close with one last point, and that's this. Because those first two, I think, even if you logically assent to them, can kind of leave you a little unfulfilled. So what? So what? Okay, you got me. Maybe you logically convince someone. I still got this pain in my life. And this third point I think is important. The existence of evil does demand a response from an all-powerful, all-loving God and from his followers. God's response is simple and yet profound. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ. God's response is, I will come and take responsibility and deal with the sin that you cannot deal with. God's response is to send Jesus down to deal with the consequences of sin and take them on himself so we don't have to take them on ourselves. See, many people want to put God on the hook and say, it's your fault if you're an all-powerful God and if you're, if you're all-powerful and you're all-loving, then it's all your fault. God puts himself on the hook. He says, I will take responsibility in a place that's not my responsibility. Jesus will leave heaven and come down the, the, the one who all creation was created through, who dwells eternally in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, says, I will come down. I will live among them. I will die. Uh, I will be crucified. I will take their sin on me as a perfect sacrifice so that they can be cleansed and don't have to bear the consequence of their sin. See, what Jesus did is basically make a way for God to eliminate evil without eliminating you. That's what Jesus did. Jesus made it possible that evil could be eliminated without having to eliminate you from God's presence and without having to eliminate me from God's presence. Otherwise, there was no way for that to happen. But God made that possible. And so what happened in Jesus was the beginning of the kingdom of God coming into this earth. And some people say, well, why doesn't God do anything about this evil? Why doesn't he respond? And one, he did on the cross, but two, he's continuing to respond. The message of the cross continues to ring through the ages. Let me give you an example. I'll show you a picture. Anyone recognize the picture? I've never been there. Maybe you've been there or maybe you recognize the picture. This picture is of a small cross that's over the emperor's gate entering into the Colosseum in Rome. It was put there by uh, Pope Benedictus in the 18th century. The Colosseum in Rome is an interesting place to have a cross when you think about the history of the Colosseum. In the time of Jesus, in the early church, it was a place of violence and death for entertainment. It was a place where people and criminals were sent to be torn apart by animals to their death or fight with a gladiator and be run through with a sword. To be factual, we can't say for sure that Christians were martyred in the Colosseum that's something that later history seemed to perpetuate, but there's no firsthand account 
to uh, say that the Christians were actually martyred in the Colosseum. They were certainly martyred around the Colosseum, and at that time, they were martyred by Nero at that time, burned at the stake, torn apart by animals in, in a place called Nero's Circus, he called it. They were definitely martyred there, and it wasn't far from uh, the Colosseum. But think about the time period that was going on. When the Colosseum's at its height and filled with maybe 50,000 people screaming for blood, a time where these little enclaves of followers of the way or disciples were starting to form in this major metropolitan city of Rome, the most powerful government on earth. And they are cowering and hiding because Nero has just declared them enemies of the state and falsely accused them of burning down part of Rome and so is now hunting them down to kill them, burning them as torches to light his gardens in the evening. And these people are meeting in groups as followers of Jesus. Small groups. And think about the thought, if you were to tell them that down the road, if you, were to, if you were to look down the road in the tunnel of history some 1,700 years, that this Colosseum that now is a place of blood and is a place of pain and is a place of agony where people uh, you know, laugh and enjoy seeing people torn from limb to limb, people who are made in the image of God killed in brutal ways and Christians are being burned and Christians are being martyred. But if you could look down the tunnel of history, you would see that one day there would be a cross over the emperor's gate entering into the Colosseum. And they would say, no way. How could this ever become that? You see, God does have a response to evil. And we can't always see it in the moment. But when you look through the annals of history and when you look at the growth of the church and all the things the church has done, so many people place blame on the church and they never look at what God has done through the church. The gift of hospitals that were started by Christians with compassion. The many mercy ministries that were started by Christians full of compassion. And many people look past that and they don't see what is God doing about evil. And yet in Jesus it started when he healed and when he raised from the dead. And yet it continued through his followers. Can you imagine Jesus sitting around with these 12 guys saying, guys, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like this little mustard seed. And they were the mustard seed. And you put a mustard seed in the ground, you don't see anything. But then it starts to grow. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until birds of the air come and make their home and nest in it. He said, that's what the kingdom's like. That's what we're doing here, guys. That this thing is gonna grow. And it's going to touch every nation and every people group on the face of the earth. And they wouldn't have believed it but it's God's response to evil. It's God's response to evil. See, God is patient. Second Peter, Second Peter, he writes this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. God's dealing with evil, but right now, he's patient. He's patient. So the existence of evil is not incompatible with either the existence of God or the existence of a loving and powerful God. But there's one final thing. The demand, yes, it demands a response from God, but it also demands a response from God's followers. You and me. Because just as we may look to God and say, why aren't you doing anything about all the pain and suffering? Could not God turn the question around and ask us, why aren't you doing anything? If you're so good, why aren't you doing anything? Well, I'm not as powerful as God. There are thousands of people, children, 
who will die this day of preventable diseases, many of whom who just need clean water. And God says, why aren't you doing anything? We say, there are millions who will starve and are starving in our world and then millions more who are killing themselves with gluttony. God says, why aren't you doing anything? Many of us are okay with the fact that we will spend more on our coffee tomorrow morning than millions, perhaps billions of people in the world live on in a day. I said, why aren't you doing anything? That there are more slaves in the world today than there were in pre-abolition slavery days. Maybe God says, why aren't you doing anything? Because the reality of God's existence and the fact that he is loving and powerful demands a response from him, yes, but it also demands a response from those that say they follow him and those that say they love him. And you and I are called to be good. You and I are called to be loving. And we're called to fight against the evil that's in this world so that we can pray the prayer, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's kingdom and God's will is to eliminate suffering and evil and injustice and all of those things that we that bother us. And he wants us to be a part of seeing that extinguished. Not ultimately defeated because he'll take care of the ultimate defeating one day when Jesus comes again. So I promised you a different question, and let me close with this. If the question's not why, what's the biblical question? If the question's not why is this happening, why, God, why would you allow this? I think the biblical question is found in passages like this in Psalm chapter 6. Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. Oh, Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. I think this is the question. How long, oh, Lord, how long? Or another Psalm, Psalm 74. How long will the enemy mock you, O oh God? Will the foe revile your name? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Or another one from Psalm 90, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. This passage says it all. God, you are loving. You have steadfast, covenant, faithful love. I don't doubt that. I know that's true. But Lord, how long? How long, God? It's not a question of doubting whether he will or whether he can or whether he wants to. It's a question of just knowing it will happen, but God, I'm in agony. An acknowledgement of God, I'm in pain. An acknowledgement of God, I'm feeling it right now. And I just want to know, God, how long? How long before you respond? How long before you deal with this? How long? And that's a very biblical question. The why questions... They don't always get answered. Just read the book of Job. God talks for four chapters and doesn't answer Job's question. In fact, he asks questions for four chapters, and Job doesn't have the answer for them. But the proper response to evil and suffering in the world from followers of Christ, I think there's righteous anger because this is not our Father's world that he wanted. I think there is lament and weeping God crying out, crying out, God, would you move? God, how long? God, would you bring healing? God, would you use me to bring about a change in this world? God, would you help me to bring about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? The response from God's followers to evil is don't be discouraged by evil, but be provoked to good. My prayer for us is that through the example of Christ, through what God has shown us, the way he has responded to evil, he wasn't discouraged. He didn't throw up his arms and say, forget it, it's hopeless, let them go, forget it. Literally, he didn't say to hell with them. 
said, I will go and I will work and I will sacrifice myself. And he expects his followers to do the same thing. Not discouraged, not turned off, not throw our arms up at evil and suffering in the world, but be provoked to good. Be provoked to bringing about the kingdom of God in whatever way that we can, wherever we find ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, that you are not a God who is afraid of our questions. Questions that we may think are hard and difficult and maybe even impossible to solve, but the truth is you are not afraid of them, Lord. And so, God, we come to you this morning and thank you that you are a great and powerful God, that you are also a great and loving God. And Lord, I pray this morning for those in this room especially who may have come in with doubts and may have come in specifically with this issue and this question, that we would leave encouraged and unshakable in our faith and in our trust in you, knowing that the difference between the one who experiences evil and runs away from God and the one who experiences evil and suffering and runs toward God, the difference is a trust that you are loving and good and powerful. Lord, may we walk away with that unshakable faith and unshakable trust that you are good and loving and powerful and patient. And Father, I pray that as we look at the suffering in the world around us or the evil in the world around us, evil that's not resolved in a 60-minute sitcom but exists day after day and our eyes see it and our heart feels it but our hands and our head often don't know what to do with it. Lord, I pray that your church, your church, would not be discouraged by evil and pain, but with our eyes on Christ and strengthened by your Holy Spirit, we would be provoked to good, that we would see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and we'll proclaim our faith and our trust in our Savior as we sing this morning.